Only a button. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 95 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. In the third annual Halloween Spooktacular, tonight live from the Boo Barn, I'm joined by Knight Mayor Fincher and our special guest, the incubus from Indiana, Jen Benson Price. I am merely a toilet paper tree named Darren. Hey, ghouls, how are you? Toilet paper tree. Good. How are you? Oh, it's great. It's Halloween time. There's, you know, nothing but about costumes and candy. It's probably the best, my favorite holiday, without a doubt. How about you guys? What's going on with you? Yeah, how are it's, you doing, Jen? I have been sick with a sinus infection, oh. but I, thanks to antibiotics, I'm on the mend. Yay! So, yeah, All right. I, I like this time of year too. Yeah. Oh, I definitely like this well, time of year. It actually came up in my Facebook memories. It was, I think, two years ago that we recorded our first Halloween oh, spooktacular. Okay. So, well, I just hope it's Halloween. I hope you avoid the light, Jen. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so this is great. This is a, again, we have a special guest. This is going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Again, we're talking about Halloween and the Civil War, all kinds of fun ghost stories. So, whether you believe in ghosts or not, just imagine sitting by the fire telling some stories. What's great about ghost tours in, in these stories is there's always a lot of history built into them. Mm-hmm. And the ghost tour, the stories tend to enhance them a little bit. And you, you notice that on ghost tours and, and ghost stories. So we'll have a lot of fun with this tonight. But yeah. since I'm a gracious host, and I don't forget ever, let's talk about what we're drinking. So uh, we'll go with Jen first because she's our guest. What are you drinking? I am actually drinking Lemon Lime Gatorade Zero because I'm still on antibiotics. But for the first time, I am actually drinking it out of a Civil War cup. I got a tumbler at Sharp at Antietam last year. So I am drinking it out of a Battle of Antietam tumbler. Nice. That's awesome. Awesome. What about you, Fincheru? Uh I am drinking Jack O by Sam Adams. And I am drinking it out of my What Would John Brown Do mug because I don't want to give away too much. But I know Jen has a story about Harper's Ferry. Oh, okay. She's going to be telling okay. tonight, and that was like I did. We don't have any Halloween type mugs in the apartment, so uh, that's what I went with. John, but I'm like, well, that's close enough, so that's what I'm doing. And what are you drinking? Excellent. Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I'm drinking uh, Molson Golden because I oh. can't think of a more hideous drink on this holiday weekend. So that's what I'm drinking right now. And I'm drinking it out of my special Halloween glass with a skull on it. So I don't want to scare the kids at home, but if you're on YouTube, I apologize for the nightmare. <laughs> but, but that's um, that's what I'm drinking. So uh, anyway, that's be a lot of fun. So we're going to tell some stories, have some fun. And we've each uh, researched two stories each to talk about in the um, paranormal of the Civil War. So why don't we just kind of get right to it? So Jen, you're our guest. So we'll kick it off with you and remind you, let's not scare people, like especially me, so we can try to sleep tonight. So what do you got? For our first story. Okay, so the first one is actually fitting that Mary has a, a John Brown mug, and you'll you'll see why. Um, the first one involves a gentleman, an older gentleman with a long beard who walks up and down the streets of Harper's Ferry like at dusk toward the evening, and you know smiles and, and waves at people, and sometimes he's accompanied by a little black dog, and they say he's just very friendly, you know, very approachable, and people have stopped to take photos of him. You know, because he looks very authentic for the time period and they think he's a reenactor, only to get home and develop the photos or look at their camera and see a blank space where the ghost of John Brown stood for their picture, but it doesn't show up on the camera when they get at home. Wow. That's creepy. No, I, I can only That's imagine. That's not even the scary one. 
that's, that's pretty. Uh, that's that's that. No, I, I can't imagine that. So yeah, obviously John Brown's got a long history in Harpers Ferry. He um, wasn't his best time, certainly without a doubt, uh, as he did that. But no, there's yeah, there's all kinds of stories of John Brown um, all through that area. Not to mention that area, but also Charlestown, West Virginia, where he was executed and tried. Um, yep. Even up his his farm at Lake Placid, New York, you can go visit his his grave. That's where he's buried. Yeah, I've I also read and that sometimes people see him walk toward like the little engine house that's still on display there. And they yeah. say that he kind of gets to the wall and disappears. Wow. That's. Oh my God. Yeah. But I thought the disappearing camera one was funnier. Yeah, no, that is funny. <laughs> it is like, if I did that and I got home, I was like, what the hell happened with that? But yeah. I, I have heard other people though, at, you know, just other people I've talked to about this, that they say like they'll be on some civil war battlefield and they'll encounter people who they think are reenactors. And then it turns out they're not that they just kind of, yeah. they watch them walk away and they just like kind of disappear. So yeah. I think that's or, quite common. Like, like that's quite common around different civil war sites. Yeah. Something like and that. I think we shared this one a couple of years ago, but there was a story, I think it was on um, haunted history where they talked about, it was at Gettysburg and they had a bunch of foreign dignitaries and they saw they were on the field with a ranger and they saw soldiers marching in formation. And yeah. when they got back to the visitor center, they're like, hey, thanks for the demonstration. And the rangers were like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. There was nothing. There was nobody. As far as they knew, there was no one in uniform on the field that day. That would be so creepy. It's... Yeah. And, and people uh, hear stuff too, like drums. And I was reading one, I didn't include it tonight, but just one about at, um, I think it's at Chickamauga where they'll hear like on Snodgrass Hill, you can hear the drums still of the soldiers. And it just happens at random times. I heard, I heard marching footsteps at Appomattox courthouse. Oh, you remember you told that one? I think that was our first one. Yeah. That's creepy. That would be creepy. It was weird. No, it definitely was. Definitely was. So, Mary, you got a story? I do. So mine is, um, I think I talked about Franklin last year. I think I talked about Carton House. Well, I'm going back to Franklin again this year to talk about the the Lotes House, which is, um, it's been on the National Historic Register in Tennessee since 1976, and it's located in the downtown Franklin area. Um, so the owner, um, Johan Albert uh, Lotes, he completed the house in 1858, but he purchased the five acres from a man named Fountain Branch Carter in 1855. And anybody familiar with the uh, Battle of Franklin will know the the name of Carter. That's the owner of the Carter House. So they were neighbors. So Lotz was a master carpenter and piano maker, and he built the house himself. And when he built it, he made it so that it was like a model home that he could show people, like potential clients, because he was very good at architecture. Um, so there's like three different styles of, uh, fireplaces in the house so that he could show people. Um, apparently the staircase is quite impressive, um, because it's like this free floating black walnut wraparound handrail. Um, it's got a post at the bottom. That's an inverted piano leg that he made. So it's a very unique structure for its time. Um, and outside the home, he's got different hand carved acorns. So it's quite beautiful. Um, so he lived there with his, uh, wife Margaret and at the time of the battle they're living in the house along with their three children Paul Augusta and Matilda and Matilda had just turned six years old the day before the battle so November 30th the day of the battle Franklin the Lotus they live right across the street from the Carters and Carter came out of the house and was like you need to come over here 
because that was the union line had set up right in that area. So the Lotzes go over and they spend um, the, whole, the whole battle in the basement with about 20 other people. And when they emerged, it was a really horrific sight that they saw. Um, so their home had been damaged. But, you know, worse than that, some of the most severe fighting had taken place right outside their home. And there were bodies everywhere. Um, some reports say that they were like six, like were stacked like six feet high in some places, like just in, it was horrific. Um, and the, the Lotes house would also serve as a hospital as well. Um, so the damage is repaired and they moved back in, but in 1869, they end up having to flee Tennessee. Um, and the story behind that um, allegedly is that he had built a piano that had an inscription on it that offended the KKK. They thought it was anti-Confederate and they threatened to tar and feather him Whoa. outside of his house. So he just quickly sold the house, left. He eventually ends up in um, California, settling in San Jose. Now, interesting story, his daughter Matilda went to art school there. Um, she's one of California's premier female artists and some of her paintings are now hanging in the Lotes home. So if you go visit it, oh, you can cool. see them there. Um, so what happened to the house? It was a cooking school, a loft, retail business, apartments at one point. In 1974, it was slated for de demolition, but then some people bought it, saved it, um, and it was basically part of the historical society. Eventually, it was um, bought by a family, and they opened it in, as a museum in 2008. So it's a privately owned, not-profit foundation. Um, you can see the place where the where Lotes had repaired damage from the battle. You can see an indent in the floor where a cannonball landed. And because it was used as a hospital, you can also still see the bloodstains on the floor. And um, that's one of the ghost stories is uh, Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers just randomly appear. And wow. apparently, um, so the director, Thomas Cartwright, he said that since the house opened to the public in 2008, Staff, volunteers, and visitors have experienced unexplainable sightings, actions, and paranormal activity. Um, and he's actually done interviews about it on different shows. And there's different things that people have seen, like a woman crying out for a loved one. They don't know if she's like somebody who lost her husband at the Battle of Franklin. There's little there's a little girl that stares out the window. And uh, items get moved around randomly, and I'll get to why that is in a second. It's considered the second most terrifying place in America, according to the Travel Channel. Um, but as I said, there's stories of Confederate soldiers that appear randomly in the house. The woman that uh, she is looking for her, probably her husband. Um, but the one part is that the Lotz family, before the Battle of Franklin, it was not even a year before, they lost two children, twins, that died unexpectedly. Um one story says they drowned. Another story says that they drank poisoned water. Um, and so they passed away. And the staff at the house believe that it is those children that do a lot of the haunting there, that they move stuff around. Visitors get their pant legs grabbed. They're very mischievous. They can sometimes hear giggling and stuff. Um, but that those are the they think those are the primary haunts there. Um, but I have to like, you know, say the, the Lotes house, I definitely want to go visit it. They do ghost tours, evening ones there this time of year. They do a lot of different tours. They do a woman's, like a woman's history based tour as well. So it's a really good, uh, historic site to visit. And I mean, I just stumbled upon it cause I'm just was looking around for ghost stuff. And I thought it was a really cool story cause the house has a really, um, interesting history 
behind it with the Battle of Franklin, and it kind of gets away from that Carter House, the Carton House as well, and telling another part of the battle. Um, and that's where some of the most horrific fighting was. Um, so that is my first ghost story is uh, the, the Lotes House in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. So if you find yourself there, um, like I said, it's privately owned. It's beautiful. They've got amazing exhibits there and you can do there's so many different tours you can do there but it is uh definitely considered to be a very haunted civil war place yeah i'd imagine there's quite a bit of stuff going on in front of franklin tennessee i'd imagine that <laughs> yeah. seems to be a, a place that <laughs> last uh, year i told <clears> about, a lot of um, stuff was going on yeah told about um claiborne's ghost being there last year outside carton house that he sometimes will talk to visitors about if it's time for the battle or not and then he rides off yeah. yeah, I mean, you never know, right? And what's cool about it is you study these stories, you find out these little mm-hmm. these little details, and you know, I couldn't imagine nothing scary in the ghosts of children outside that, right? Yeah, now. that's what freaked me out about it was well, and see, they don't really talk about that too many places. And then I came across it on one website that they'd had these twins that died, and apparently it was like um, in early 1864, the Union Army was there, and they cut down a bunch of trees, and they apparently might have done something to the water that the kids drank. Oh, which is pretty, well, yeah, which is pretty scary. So I think we're on to you for a ghost story now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of children, my first ghost story here is, is a popular one, and that is the story of the orphanage at Gettysburg. And, and this is a popular one. A lot of people know this one, but some background about the orphanage. It, it was opened on November 20th of 1866. It's right there on Baltimore Street in Gettysburg. Um, the purpose was to house and clothe and educate the countless orphans that were caused by the Civil War. And the building is rumored to be the former headquarters of Oliver Otis Howard during the battle. I don't know if you knew that, but that's been debated or not. Um, U.S. Grant, he wasn't at the battle, but he was photographed outside of it around 1867. So it it was a famous place in the town. When it opened, it housed 22 children, 12 boys and 10 ghouls. And by 1868, there were 60 orphans in the property, Initially, the staff, you know, they were real caring and everything real, ran really smoothly. They were fed well. Uh, they were treated well. But as time went on, the staff slowly drifted away to different jobs, including the headmistress who took a management position at the DQ on Steinware. So she <laughs> left. So her replacement was a woman from Philadelphia named Rosa Carmichael. Now, Carmichael was nothing like her predecessor. I mean, she was a, a disciplinarian. She was probably the type of person who gave out pennies on Halloween, just a miserable, (laughs) miserable soul. She had a perverse imagination on doling out punishment to these children who their ages ranged from just five years old to 13. Now, her punishment methods really were more torture than punishment. For example, she placed children in large buckets of freezing water. She tied them to split rail fences in the backyard for the entire day, oh my God. good or bad weather. Um, she locked them for an entire day inside the outhouse. And she also had an assistant that the children referred to as the stick boy who helped enforce these, these, these penalties. Guess what they call him the stick boy? Because he carried a stick. Because <laughs> he hit him with a stick. Oh that's not, not a trick question. That's, that's why they call him that. That's what he was. Now, needless to say, Rosa Carmichael was meaner and angrier than a Yankee fan in October. That's how miserable this this woman was. And so she ruled the orphanage with a steel fist. And her ultimate punishment involved the basement of the house. So when a child was especially bad by her standards, 
this, the child was brought into the basement. It was a dark and dusty and scary place that you can still visit today, by the way. The kids call it the dungeon. And in the back of it had a little separate nook and they called it the pit. Now to prevent kids from escaping, um, they were all shackled to the wall with chains, usually for days at a time. And when they cried, the kids upstairs could hear the kids screaming. So it almost acted like an incentive to behave by hearing your friends tortured in the basements. Some of these kids, by the way, were five years old. That's how, how this age we're talking about of, the, of the, these poor kids. The abuse went on for years and the people of Gettysburg were completely oblivious to what Rosa Carmichael was doing to these, these, these orphans. Now, since the orphanage was a public institution, nobody was allowed on the property unless you had written permission to go on. But it was rumored and was believed by many that Carmichael had killed uh, some of these children either accidentally or on purpose, but there was never any real evidence to kind of, to kind of prove it. One day, a 16-year-old kid who happened to be locked in the outhouse for the day in December was discovered by some neighbors and they were shocked at what they saw. So neighbors did what neighbors do and they, they flapped their mouths and the word got around to what Carmichael was doing. So ultimately she gets arrested and she gets hauled to the courthouse and put on trial for child abuse and neglect. They find her guilty, but guess what her penalty is? She's fined 20 bucks. That's her penalty, $20 fine. Oh and when she got back and they let her go back to the orphanage. Now she went back and she was pissed because why some of these children were the, some of the kids who were called witnesses to her trial and they sent her back with these kids and the, the, the town folk were pissed at this decision. So they literally took torches and marched in a mob to the orphanage and they literally chased her out of town. And she was never heard from again. And so basically, you know, she disappeared from history. Soon later in 1877, the orphanage was in huge debt and it was forced to close and the children were either adopted or spread around to different foster homes in the area. And the building was basically turned into what it is today, which is an apartment complex as well as a gift shop. And it's got a ghost shop in there as well. So the children in Carmichael, they're long gone. Or are they? Hmm? Hmm? So according to many, the spirits of these children and even this headmistress herself are still there making their presence known to those who visit. Visitors to the orphanage now, they, they say they hear little children's cries from the basement as well as laughter from children as well. There's sounds of kids running up and down the stairs and on the floor. On several occasions, there are full apparitions of these of two young girls dressed in tattered rags. And they just stare at you. And if you've seen The Shining, nope, you don't want that, oh. right? But that's what was going on with this. So there was sounds of ra those rattling shackles that, were, that we could hear from the basement. And there was even a sighting of the angry Rosa Carmichael from the window that she was staring out. So if you've been to the orphanage, there's definitely, if, if you guys have been there or not, but there is a definite feeling of just overwhelming despair when you're in there, especially in that basement. And if you visit, you can still see the original shackles and the chains on the basement walls. And you can imagine, I mean, you, it's, it's a very easy thing to go through in your mind, the sheer terror felt by these poor kids doled out to them at the, at the hands of this evil Rosa Carmichael. 
And it's not a Civil War story, but it's a famous one in Gettysburg to this day. You can go and visit it um, and you can tour it. And if you go there, you, it's one of those places you can, it's thick. You can just feel the, just feel the energy. And um, no one ever knew, knew really what happened to old Rosa. She took off and she disappeared from the, from the planet. But, um, but her ghost, if, if people, if you believe that, is still there today with all these kids of, um, who are really made miserable by her, uh, by her presence. So um, that's my first story. So if you go there and you check it out, it's definitely worth checking out because it's, um, it's something that you really, if you go to Gettysburg and you're into that type of thing, go because you'll feel it, you will. Uh, you've been yeah. on that tour, right, Jen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I remember you talking about that with the toys, how they would... Yeah, there was a table full of toys down there and um, we were rolling a ball and it rolled kind of, excuse me, kind of into the pit area and stopped for a minute and then rolled back. So it wasn't like it paused, like it got up to the top of the hill. It actually stopped for a minute, like somebody was holding it and then it came back to the people. But yeah, yeah, that was, it is, it is a sad place, but it kind of made me feel better when we went downstairs and people had started leaving toys for the kids yeah, and things like that. There was a table full of things they could play with and stuff like that. Aww. There was a, there was a story somebody had told me and um, that somebody had left a doll. And when the person came back the next day, the doll's arms and legs are broken off. Ooh. And they think, so was, was, this, was this the ghost of Rosa taking punishment on one of the kids again by destroying their toys? And yeah. um, who knows? That's what's cool about it. You never really know. But there are a lot of places um, in that town or a lot of these towns um, in the Civil War where you can feel the energy. You know, whether there's ghosts or not, that's to be that's up to you. But there's definitely energy, positive mm-hmm. and negative. And oh, there's yeah. no question there's negative energy at the orphanage at Gettysburg. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's, yeah, well, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, luck, good luck with that one, especially kids. Uh, no, scary. No, yeah. no, 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 no. All right. So, uh, Jen, you got another story? What do you got? I do. It's another Harper's Ferry story. And this one actually involves one of the five um, African-Americans that was part of John Brown's raid. Yeah. And um, I'm going to give a little bit of background on the story because it explains why he was there. But um, he was uh, a freed Black named Dangerfield Newby, um, born in 1820. His mother was a slave woman who was owned by someone who apparently didn't care that much what she did because she had several children with a white, a local white farmer. And um, anyway, so um, long story short, they all ended up, I want to say they were in Ohio for a while, but then they went back toward Virginia or some, some that area. And along the way, Dangerfield had met an enslaved woman and they had several children together. So he was still freed and his, he was working as a blacksmith trying to raise the money to buy his family. Mm-hmm. And about the time that this was coming up, he had tried raising the money and tried to get the guy to negotiate the price down and the guy wouldn't budge on it. He wanted a thousand dollars for the family, which in those days would be like almost 30,000 today. Yeah. So, you know, this poor man had got gotten to like 750 for the time and was trying to negotiate. Can I, you know, can I pay you the rest? And while he's trying to raise all this money, his wife is saying, you got to hurry. They're going to sell us to Louisiana and then we'll never see you. So um, when he, someone introduced him to John Brown, um, he was like, okay, this is my only chance because this guy's not going to budge. So now I'm going to, I'm just going to join this guy and I can free my family that way. So 
he was at the Kennedy farm helping plan and everything like that. And then on the day of the, the actual raid, um, he was kind of on the perimeter mm-hmm. and he was being approached by, by townspeople to try to figure out what was going on. Well, him and the other soldier were firing and they hit somebody. So a sniper from it's the, I think it's the corner of Shenandoah and high street. There's like a, like a building right there. And they mm-hmm. said at the time it was like a house and they think some a sniper from the second story window shot Dangerfield newbie. But the thing is, this guy didn't have bullets. He used a six inch railroad spike and got him in the neck. Oh my God. And that's not even the worst part of the story. This just makes me so sad. But um, he, because he was kind of on the, the front lines and he was one of, he was the first person with John Brown's group to get shot or killed. And um, they said he died pretty quickly, obviously. Mm-hmm. But after that, like the townspeople were taking, like mutilating his body, taking souvenirs. And then they threw him into what is now Hog Alley. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, what is now Hog Alley in um, Harper's Ferry. And they said, like one hog went up and kind of looked at him. And then a few minutes later, that was what was left of him, went to the hogs, literally went to the hogs. Oh my God. So um, they, the story we heard is that you can still see him walking down hog alley. And some people say that you can still see the injury. The story they told us in Harper's Ferry when we were there is that like some people have seen him with the railroad spike still like on his throat. Oh my God. But um, they say he's just one of the, they say he's, I, I don't think he's actively trying to harm people, mm-hmm. but they say he is definitely one of the scariest things, like the scariest ghost you'll see in Harper's Ferry. And something else that they had told us, if you want to get him to show up, you walk down Hogs Alley whistling the song Dixie. And I couldn't do it. I was like, I am not going to torment this poor man. He's yeah. been through enough. But other people tried it. And I, I don't know if he showed up for people that night, but I always get an eerie feeling walking down that little street so oh my god that that is sad and scary yeah and um I was gonna do a quick book plug because I know everybody here likes to read um I got a lot of Dangerfield newbie's background after I heard that story at Harper's Ferry I got a lot of his background from the book Five for Freedom by Eugene L. Meyer it's it's this oh cool okay and if you want the background of the African-Americans who were with John Brown and like what they were why they were there and how it all how it went for all of them it's a it's an amazing book it really is good oh that's that's I've never heard of that one before so that's cool yeah so fight for freedom oh cool yeah that's a scary sad story I I warned it I, I warned you yeah that oh my gosh yeah, that's why I wanted to do that one second. I wanted to get the funny one and then, yeah. but yeah, that, and that, like reading that book after like hearing what this man had gone through and then hearing that he still haunts a place, it was just, I have a soft spot for him. I just feel oh, yeah. so bad. Yeah, I, I don't think I could whistle Dixie and I, I've never been able to, be, no. no, no. If he's there, I'm just like, hey, just passing by. I hope you're having a good day. You know, yeah. that I just, I can't. I can't torment someone who's been through what that man went through. Yeah, that's terrible. It's good of a day you can with having a railroad spike stuck in your throat, I suppose. You know, oh. but ugh, yeah. that, that's uh, well. And you, when you, but you know what though? When you when you hear these stories like that, 
yeah, the ghost story is scary, but you think of just the, the experience of what put yourself in that spot, seeing him take that injury and, and just, and just what the, what people can do to each other in, in, in acts of war and, and, and violence. It's just, it's just a scary, scary thing when you think about it. And again, it, it leaves the energy behind. So it's no surprise that that stuff still gets felt in yeah. a little place yeah. like that. I don't know if I'm whistling Dixie in Hog Alley. I don't know if I'm going to be doing that. No. I do I, I do know that I saw a lady screaming when she had to wait for a table at Harvest Bay one time. That was scary. <laughs> I will say that. So oh, I don't yeah, need something with a railroad spike in No, no, no. I, I never in a million years. But but that's um but that's a pretty scary place. Yeah. Oof, God. But I think too that goes back to, you know, um like I mean, I love the ghost tours because I'm into the whole ghost thing. But the other reason I love the ghost tours as well is because you hear a history you wouldn't normally hear. That's why I like them. Yeah. And it, someone said um, on Twitter that, you know, they like them because it gets people into history that might not be into history. They might not do a normal history tour, but they might be willing to be like, oh, I'll go on a ghost tour. And they learn something and they find it interesting. You know, like, would we know of the gentleman you talked about if it, like, he should be on another tour, like a normal history tour, but because his ghost is in Harper's Ferry, apparently... That's where people learn about him, but yeah, that's that's where I first heard of him, and then I found the book through a friend. Yeah. But it was on the ghost tour that I first heard that story. Yeah, and that's why the ghost tours are good because you learn a different type of history. You learn about the history of the town. You learn about something that you might not on you know if you're learning about a battle, you might not hear that kind of thing. You learn about the town that you're visiting. Well, well most ghost tour stories are intensely personal in, mm-hmm. in their in their design, and you're sharing someone's experiences. And it's not talking about battle formations or politics or things like that. You're talking about an individual what they experienced. And, and you can almost feel the injury in your mind when you hear the stories. And you wonder what his, you know, what, what was he thinking at that moment? Did he regret being there? And, and you, it's really that grassroots level of history that these stories, that these tours really provide to you. That's why they're important to go on. And it's not so much for the ghost thing, but it's, it's that individual history. You know, in Gettysburg, they have that post-battle tour that you can go on. And it's it's off Steinware. It's promoted as kind of a ghost tour. But they tell you about the the post-situation in the town, what the townsfolk had to put up with and how it smelled and how long it lasted mm-hmm. for. And, um, it's you know, it's pushed as a paranormal tour to get people in there. But you learn immensely about that post-initial post-battle and, w- and what it must have been like. And it's just another way to study history. And yeah. That's what's great about them. They really, really are. Yeah. And I got to say kudos to the people that do those ghost, ghost tours because they have to do just as much research as, you know, mm-hmm. someone doing a tour at a museum or, you know, on a battlefield. I think like there's, it's maybe a little bit of a different type of research, but it's still researching history and you have to know it and you have to, you know, they're not just making the stuff up. It, it comes from somewhere. Um, you know, yeah. Gettysburg had ghost stories before the battle. That's one thing we've mentioned on here before. And I think it's a fascinating way to learn about the history of different areas, you know, no matter where you're visiting. Well, speaking of ghost, Mary, I know where you're going with your next story. Oh, yeah. Well, we just did an episode about the gray ghost. So John Mosby. So I found a ghost story. Um, I was, I just stumbled upon it accidentally about, uh, possibly one of Mosby's Rangers that, um, is a ghost in Virginia. Um, so kind of a bit of a backstory. So Mosby's men are said to haunt certain areas in Virginia where Mosby and his Rangers were. Um, so back in August, 1864, you have, um, Phil Sheridan going into the Valley. Um, 
and Mosby and his men capture and burn a Union supply train near Berryville, and that really pisses Sheridan off, and that's when he starts on his whole, um, you know, basically, he was going to do it anyway, but that really fired him up to, like, let's total war, burn the valley. Um, so, and Mosby's men, a lot of them hailed from that area, so they were taking personally what Sheridan was doing, you know, like they're from Virginia, and he's there burning, you know, he's burning the valley. And so anyway, flash forward to Front Royal, Virginia, where some of Mosby's men are killed by Sheridan, and I think it was Custer who was involved Custer, yeah. as well. Two are hung, four are shot, including a young boy who we discussed, Darren discussed that in the episode we did about John Mosby. Um, in retaliation to this, Mosby kills three of Sheridan's men. And after that, there's no more killing on either side of the men. They're treated like prisoners of war. Um, now, f- Front Royal was originally called Helltown when it was first settled. Um, so beginning in 1870 and appearing every six years until around 1925, there's a weird apparition that the locals called Whirl Away. It's a violent outburst of wind shrieking through the field and forest, and then an apparition appears, not for very long, um, and it's first as a silver-green light, and then from this apparently a figure emerges of a man wearing a plain gray jacket and trousers with a visored kepi shading his eyes. And he's surrounded by a shining silver glow, and it looks like he's underwater. So it's a very weird kind of apparition. And he moves quickly, almost as much as you know, you see him for a second, and then he disappears. So the last time Whirl Away was seen was in 1925, and he caused quite a ruckus in the area of Front Royal. Um, so Mrs. Cook and her daughters are out one day, they're down near the river, and all of a sudden it got really windy, and they knew the story of Whirl Away, so they took off and started running, and because um, they could also hear the sound of heavy boots behind them on the gravel road. So they ran to their house, they bolted the doors, and Whirl Away just went from, like, he stayed outside, but one into the house, back and forth all afternoon just apparently terrorizing them and then he went across the river and apparently did it elsewhere whirl away apparently has not been seen since 1925 and they don't know if he finally was like at peace somehow but there's a few different origin stories for him one of them is that he was a man that was looking to join mosby's rangers a young man from front royal and Sheridan's men found him, killed him, and dumped him in the river. That's one backstory. The other backstory is that he is one of Mosby's rangers, because Mosby's rangers apparently dressed very plainly in just gray, and they would have lived with the locals, so they would be familiar with the area. And we all know Mosby's rangers like to ride around really quick, and they would disappear. That's why Mosby was called the Gray Ghost. Um, whatever his story, Whirl Away has not been seen since 1925, but it's still something that is talked about in the area. Um, but I just found it really interesting. And the other one to that is sometimes hunters still hear Mosby's uh, men riding up and down the roads, like in Fairfax and the area that he was in. They can hear like the spurs and stuff and there's nothing else around, but they can hear like the sounds of the, the spurs, the horse's hooves, and just like the sounds that you would associate with um, cavalry riding around near you. Um, so Mo- it's now, I tried to find a story to see if Mosby's ghost was anywhere, but apparently the gray ghost is not a ghost. 
Oh, that would be kind of, you know, redundant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I thought World Away, I don't know, reading that really freaked me out just because of how he would like appear, just this strong shrieking wind and the sound yeah. of heavy boots and then this weird light and then it's like this apparition where everything's swirling around him and it looks like he's underwater. But you can see just for a split second he's got the gray cappy and the gray clothes on. And he just went around all, kind of terrorizing. Can't they all just be like Casper and be nice? Can't they all? I mean, my God, it's so much to ask. Oh no. Seriously, it's so rude. But that is a, that is definitely a scary story. It definitely yeah. is. It was one I'd, I'd never heard it before. And I thought it was yeah. just really interesting. Hey, how do you guys feel about embalmed bodies? About what? Um, embalmed bodies. Uh, you guys like that? Is that pretty cool stuff? No. Well, I got a story for you then. Okay, we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about some embalmed bodies here. Okay, oh. um, so you know, as the Civil War goes on, um, it, it, it spurred a lot of towns on the map that we know of today: Gettysburg, Sharpsburg, you know, Fredericksburg, and one that became really popular uh, after the battles of South Mountain in Antietam is the town of Frederick, Maryland. We've been there many times. It's, it's a great little place. After the Battle of Antietam. The town of Frederick, the population flooded by over 8,000 wounded soldiers, um, which doubled the town's population. Uh, 27 buildings in the town were made into field hospitals, and the town's popularity really, really took off because everybody knew the town of Frederick. Because these hospitals, they were embedded journalists there from the New York Times, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, and they were all reporting to readers nationally and internationally about what the goings on of these hospitals in this tiny town of Frederick. And they say necessity is the mother of all invention, Marin, if you've heard that before. But it also, you know, just, but what it does, it serves a, you know, basically a morbid purpose, which is the dying in these hospitals. Frederick became the hub of embalming in the country at this point, okay? Frederick, for the most part, was also the hub of a coordinated military hospital system that was organized by Dr. Jonathan Letterman, everybody knows him from Gettysburg, mm -hmm. right? For his triage system. And the influx of recovering soldiers and in, in motivated entrepreneurs led to a spike in crime in the town. Uh, it added to the hospital misery. Not only we get people in the hospital for the battle, people are getting attacked and knifed and they're going back in the hospital. It kind of turned into a wild town. And before the war, for the most part, people didn't travel that much. They tended to die where they lived, and that's kind of how it worked. Now, with countless soldiers dying in towns far away, this embalming process in this business became booming. So uh, throw in the fact that the railroad companies would not allow a dead body on the train unless it was embalmed. So you kind of you had to. It became a popular and a necessary, uh, necessary process. So embalming became a lucrative process as well as a macabre one, as they say, right? Embalmers were fetching a hundred bucks a corpse at this point and in an embalming shop in Washington, D.C. Embalmers were taking the bodies of, um, of unknown dead and embalming them, putting them in windows to display as an advertisement for future embalmers. What? That's, that, that was the industry. So it was really, really sketchy, but that's what was going on. One of the more popular embalming buildings in Frederick was located at 48 East Patrick Street and owned by a guy named James Whitehall. And he was running the property originally as a furniture store. Um, furniture makers, for the most part, were 
in the undertaking business because they were used to building, they were used to building coffins. Um, they had the wood, they had the supplies, and they can get seven bucks a coffin. So it was it was extra business for them. One of the embalmers that Whitehall employed was a guy named Dr. Richard Burr. And, um, and he happily advertised that he was embalming bodies at this East Patrick Street address. If you've seen the picture of the embalmer, it's a famous Civil War picture. You see the guy under the blanket. Yep. And the guy standing up. That's Burr. That's him. Okay. So Burr was a sleaze. He was a, he was a scumbag. He stole money from grieving families and took advantage of people really to make the money off of the dead as he could. There was one time he um, there was a body delivered. He embalmed it. His name, uh, the father's name was Timothy Dwight, and the father comes to retrieve the body of his son, and Burr won't let him have the body unless he pays him a hundred bucks because he embalmed it without permission. He just embalmed it. He said you want your kid back, hundred bucks. So we kind of held him oh ransom. So that's kind of how it was, and so we kind of held the family ransom with that. These embalmers were, were ghouls, like literally, literally and figuratively. Many of these guys followed the army around. They passed out business cards to the men before going into battle for, for future services. <laughs> Not surprisingly, generals such as U.S. Grants, they banned them from, from hanging around the army because he called them vultures. Uh, Burr himself was banned by George Meade after Gettysburg for doing the same thing. That's what these guys did, oh right? <laughs> so now the property at 48 East Patrick Street um, that handled all these embalmings ended up being a mortuary for about a hundred years. And in 1996, it became the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, which still remains to this day. That's the building that, that, that they're in. And according to people who worked there, especially during the renovations that took place in 1998, strange things afoot at the Circle K started happening in this building. So workmen who were doing the renovations refused to go to certain parts of the building by themselves. They heard the voice of children in, in rooms that they know didn't exist. Many of the staff reported seeing a woman dressed in a long gray Victorian dress on the third floor of the museum, as well as incidents where lights would go on and off by themselves. So it was a spooky place. On a handful of occasions on the security camera, an apparition of a man would show up. He would appear then disappear right on the film. And visitors would, would feel people brush by them. They'd get pushed. They'd get bumped while they're looking at the exhibits in, in this place. So it's hardly a surprise that a building was kind of switched, such a gruesome past would hold so much energy that we talked about before. But for the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, as well as that orphanage in Gettysburg, they're really both, both there to be toured today. And they both offer ghost tours as well. But yeah, a lot of people, if you go to the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, that building has a real history. It's a hundred-year mortuary full of embalming. And if you look into the process of what these embalmers did, um, it, we, it, people talk about the, the media chasing them around. But these guys were literally ghouls preying on the dead and families to make money because they knew they couldn't get, get the body home if they were far away without being embalmed. And they got a hundred bucks a pop for this. So it's just another level of, of um, of just of just a crappy humanity that floated around these people that that, that you had to deal with in this war, that is just something that people don't always think about. No. You know, Richard Burr was he's um and he he was one that um, you know where he's buried, Mary? He's buried in Philly at Laurel Cemetery, by the way. Oh, where Meet is? Yeah, yeah. He's ironically he got kicked out of the army by Meet at Gettysburg. He's buried right around the corner from him. 
So how you doing? Hopefully me to slap him around, oh you know, but, but that's, that's the process of what this was. And it, and it really put the town of Frederick on the map because that, that, that those 27 hospitals that were built in the national notoriety, it came because of Jonathan Letterman. So, um, so if you never know, go to the museum, you might see something, you that's might see something more, more than just, uh, more than just a couple of, of medicine tubes and some med- medical yep. tools. So, yeah. So that's, what's great about these stories is, is every one of them has a history behind them. And in all the, all these stories, there's a genesis to them that created the stories. Mm-hmm. And sometimes learning those stories is just as interesting as studying any of these battles, or any of these people, because, because this is real history. This is the stuff that you learn about and it just makes you cringe. And, um, and people have been taking advantage of people for as long as it's been people, unfortunately. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. That is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. No idea. So enjoy if you go to Frederick, not just those those rooftop bars Mary no. likes to go to, but there's other places you can go in Frederick and see some of that stuff. <laughs> but go to the go to the museum and you can check it out. You can ask the staff; they'll probably tell you all about it. You can take a ghost tour of the place too. They'll let you tour the place and they'll tell you the stories as well. That's really cool. That's, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, it's creepy. I mean, I always wondered who that like. I've seen that embalming photo many times, and yeah, wouldn't it be yeah, ironic all the if you? Stuff gets- Oh, sorry. Go All ahead, the medical Jen. stuff gives me the will- gives me the oh, willies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh no, I I can't. Like, I get. Well, you think like, you think ugh. of the famous story with you know with uh, Abraham Lincoln's son. Yeah. With the embalmer, where he was, and Lincoln himself was embalmed so many times, but you know he, you know Willie, he you know he dies, and Abe was, reportedly he went on at least two occasions to visit him and open his coffin up in the tomb to see him, you know a- after he, he had died. And, and he was a very spiritual guy anyway, yeah. but, but the, the, this embalming process helped, um, you know, I guess it helped people grieve in a lot of different ways. You know, um, there's that story of George Lamb Willard in Get- Gettysburg we've yeah. talked about, where he gets killed at Gettysburg. He gets hit in the back of the head or the shoulder area with a shell and blows the whole side of his face off. And they tried to embalm him and they couldn't because the stuff came right out of his veins, out of his neck. But the parents insisted his family insisted on an open coffin. And so by the time he got back home, he wasn't in the best shape. So they put him under in a glass coffin and they put a flag over half of his face to cover the injury. Oh. And that's kind of how the whole death process was at, at this time. You know, bombers really were, were really, they really, this the history of bombing really begins the civil war. Yeah. And, um, and there's all kinds of stories of this and just hear hearing how, um, they would chase these guys around just to make a buck with this. It's just, it's just a, it's a real lecherous part of society. If you yeah, think about that's... it. No offense to the bombers out there nowadays, because no. I know them. But the, uh, but back in the day, no thanks. That's almost what I did as a career, <laughs> as a funeral director. That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> that's almost about right. Decided not to. No, that's a, that's a good, yeah, that's, that, a good that, that's a that's a good one too. Like that's interesting yeah. history. Um, it, was just, it would be really ironic if Burr was the guy that embalmed Mead. <laughs> if they were well, who knows Philly, you know, you never know. He, he could have been. He could have been. I mean, he was a, you know, he, Burr was a famous one. He did a lot of people. I, I, that's a good question. I didn't even think about that. So, but perhaps he did. Who knows if Mead was even embalmed? Who knows if he was? But, but. It certainly is the case. So I think it's Halloween's a great holiday. There's many mm-hmm. stories like this that we've talked about, a lot of fun ones to be discovered too. So don't be afraid of taking ghost tours because ghost tours is just another history. It's another way to study history. It's at a much more personal level. doesn't mean you've got to believe in ghosts. You don't have to worry about ghosts coming out of your TV at night and spooking the family. 
but it's it's one of those things where um where it just gives you a t- different type of, of of studying to read this stuff and take it for what take it for a grain of salt have fun with it everyone loves those campfire ghost stories but behind every ghost story there's a real history story yeah and you can learn a lot of cool stuff by taking these ghost stories yeah yeah i really recommend the the farnsworth um house basement tour it's kid friendly um but it's really good it's got it's a little creepy but it it's a really good one um and i know they do they do more adult ones as well but i think a lot of these little civil war towns have the ghost stories and if they don't have the ghost tours but if they don't have the ghost tours you know look for a town history because odds are they've got a ghost story associated with them like i found the one about mosby's rangers there's harper's ferry we talked last year about perryville about uh we nicknamed the horse mr dead yeah (laughs) claiborne's horse that still gallops up and down the road at perryville they all have uh these stories associated with them and you know as silly as a ghost story might seem it they're rooted in history and they're part of the battle and it, or just part of the, the life there that, and often the locals will know the stories too. It certainly is. It certainly is. Well, any final words from you, Fincheru? No, well, thank you to Jen for joining us again for yeah. our third annual. Thank you guys for having job. me. Yes, that was great stories. And you're a trooper because I know what sinus infections are like. They're not fun. Yeah, sorry, I had to mute myself and cough oh, a few times, but I made it. it. Don't so. worry about it. No, you I made awesome. it. You did, awesome. you did it. You did it. So, yeah. Mayor, what's coming up for us? Uh, well, we have to sit down and uh, talk about that for upcoming episodes. But on November the 17th, we will be having, you can say his name because I will butcher it. His name is Cal Schoonover. Cal Schoonover on to talk about his book Wisconsin at Antietam. Um, so that'll be... I've read. It's a good one. Yeah, I'm... and he's a he's a good dude, good solid Red Sox fan. Although he likes Notre Dame, which is unacceptable, <laughs> but for the most part, he he uh, he he had wrote a really good book about Wisconsin and uh, Antietam. Everybody knows that knows the, the Wisconsin regiments. So we're going to talk about them. He'll be joining us on the 17th. So if you're interested in joining us, feel free to to shoot us an email at info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And uh, Mary will respond back to you <laughs> and, and send you the information. So hopefully we get a lot of people. If you haven't read the book, it's totally okay. You can come on and listen to him yep. talk about it. Ask him questions, uh, whatever you like to do. You know the drill if you've been on this before. If you haven't, uh, definitely jump on. It's not your grandfather's book club. We no. sit there and read chapter and verse. We just talk about the book. We've had a lot of cool people on in the past. And soon, Mary, I don't know if you know this, we're going to be announcing next year's book club. We are. And it's yep. in process. We can't we can't divulge any yep. state secrets <laughs> just yet. But suffice it to say, there's going to be some cool people joining us next yep. year. We think people are going to really like it. We're really looking forward to it. All right. So I guess we could finish this off here so we can head off into the uh, – jump on our on our brooms and fly into the moonlight yep. and, and head off head off into the night. So um, off we go again. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you so much for the great Jen Price for joining us yet again. And we Thank look forward guys. to the ghost, uh, the, the spooktacular part IV next year. We'll be talking yep. about that. Yep. We talk about um, we talk about more stories of the Civil yep. War and the paranormal. Yep. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Our live is Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Join us. Have a great Halloween if we don't talk to you. And we look forward to seeing you all on the other side. See you guys later. Peace out. Bye, guys. Bye.